weird in a way, but it's just how it's going to be this morning. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Growing up, we uh, learn many different uh, superstitions. Uh, these are many and varied. Uh, don't walk under a ladder. Uh, don't break a mirror. You'll get seven years bad luck, right? Don't open a, an umbrella inside. You don't do these things. You'll, something bad will happen if you do these things. They come with dire warnings. You'll have bad luck or things won't go well for you. And yet we know that they're not real. They have somehow crept into the collective consciousness uh, of our culture, but at the end of the day, they really don't matter. I've opened an umbrella inside before, and nothing uh, particularly bad ever happened to me. I've accidentally broken mirrors. I'm sure we all have. We know it's not real. We know it, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Scripture, however, uh, does pronounce some curses on people if they do things wrong. If you don't live how you're supposed to before God, there's a punishment that you will incur. And in the Old Testament, we see a, a kind of a fascinating picture of this as the people of God are preparing to cross the Jordan River. And there's this scene of Israel split between two mountains, Mount Gezerim and Mount Ebal. And they're acting out this antiphonal call and response to each other. And from Gez, um, Gezrim, they are calling out blessings. And from Ebal, they're calling out curses. And they're going back and forth and back and forth. It's really this visual. And if we were to go look at the book of Deuteronomy, we'd see the nature of some of these curses. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image. And an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by hands of craftsmen and sets it up in secret. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father and mother. Cursed anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Cursed be, any, be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them. The Apostle Paul himself would have known these curses very well. He would have known them uh, through his study of the word of God. He was, as we know, a Pharisee among Pharisees. He would have known them. Uh, but it was also traditionally said that if you received the 40 lashes minus one, these curses would have been read out as you were lashed. Paul received that five times. Five times he received the 40 lashes minus one. And you can imagine as Paul is being uh, lashed, him hearing these curses 
as he's being beaten. And so when Paul comes here and says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all these things, he understands these curses and what they mean. So as we come to our text this morning, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see cursed by the law. Second, we're going to see living by faith. And third, we're going to see redeemed by Christ. Cursed by the law, living by faith, redeemed by Christ. Paul in verse 10 picks up on this idea of curses. God's curses clearly fall on anyone who does not keep the law. God's curses fall on those who does not who do not keep the law. Not only must we keep it, we must continue to keep it. Everything that God's is written in God's law down to the last detail. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. If you do not abide by every last part of the law, then the law brings a curse to you. And Paul, once again for us, is setting up his defense of justification by faith alone. He insists that no one can be accepted by God through their working of the law. He says, if you try to work out the law and, I, and you can't keep it perfectly, you will therefore fall under its curse. Only, unless, on the off chance, you can keep it perfectly, but we go throughout scripture, James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become accountable for all of it. Hebrews 2.2. 2. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience receives a just retribution. If you can't keep all of it, then the whole of the curse comes for you. The punishment, in essence, for failing to keep the God's law perfectly, for living up to God's standard of righteousness, <coughs> is a curse. This is true for everyone, without exception. Every sin divert, deserves God's wrath, both in this life and the life to come. Now, this is the doctrine we often call total depravity. Not that we are as bad as we could be, but that every part of us is corrupt. Every last bit of us is corrupt. We are sinful all the way through. There is no part of us that is not touched by this corruption. And again, we see this from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Over and over again, this is said. If they sin against you, this is in, in 1 Kings, there is no, for there is no one who does not sin and are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of enemy. Uh, even in 1 Kings, it says there's no one who does not sin. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Romans 3, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone has fallen short of God's perfect glory. But it's not only confirmed by 
a scripture. It's confirmed by our own lives. If we were to stop for a minute and say, uh, I'm going to give you a moment to consider your own life and to ask yourself the question, have you perfectly kept the law of God? What conclusion would you come to? Have you ever failed in it in even one area? Because this is the reality. Our, our, our family lives, our church life, our lives with friends and coworkers <coughs> is evidence to us that we have not kept the law. We fight, we bicker. Little things, big things. Even here in the church where we are to be among God's people, we do this with one another. We get angry with one another. We say, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to see you anymore. Why then, if this is true, would anyone try to base their salvation on the keeping of the law? The reality is this, that the Judaizers who were coming in preaching that you had to keep the law were actually not escaping God's curse, but they were bringing it down upon themselves. They wanted to be accepted upon their own merits, but it was just a perversion of the law. God did not give us the law to make us good. God gives us the law to show us how not good we actually are. The problem then is not the law, <coughs> it's us, it's our sin. And so if we to seek to live under the law, then we live under its curse. Because we can't, we can't live up to the, to the law. There's no way we can do it. And therefore we receive its punishment. There's not one part of us that is not corrupt. And it points us to the need of something greater, the need of something more than our own efforts, our own abilities. And I think as we examine ourselves, we know this to be the case, and we don't have to dig that deep to find it. Do you really have to think too hard on the last time that you sinned? No, it probably happened this morning. We are far removed from God apart from Jesus Christ. We do not naturally lean towards him. We lean towards the sinful things of this world. So the question for Paul becomes, if this is true, if we cannot live up to the law, if we are indeed under its curse, how then will we live? Now it is evident, he says in verse 11, that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. We continue to wrestle with the question Paul has been asking over and over again. How do I stand in right relationship with God? How can God accept me as right? And at the end of the day, there's only two possibilities to this question. Pardon me. Either I am justified by works of the law, or I am justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Justification, our being made right, cannot come through the law. 
And when I say the law, I've saying this over and over and over again. It cannot come by the way we live. It cannot come by us doing good things. It cannot, cannot come through our, our efforts. We cannot be justified by doing. We have to be justified by believing. Believing and doing, when it comes to our just, justification, are mutually exclusive. We cannot count on our own works. Calvin says it this way. The law justifies him who fulfills all of it. Whereas faith justifies those who are destitute of the merit of works and rely on Christ alone. To be justified by our own merit and by the grace of another are irreconcilable. You cannot be justified on your own merits and justified by the works of another. They do not go together. <coughs> Paul illustrates this by quoting from Habakkuk 2.4. As we go on here, the righteous shall live by faith. This is what Habakkuk 2.4 says. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. These words in their context are condemning uh, the Babylonians who have come in. They were not in right relationship with God. They did not trust in God. They trusted in themselves. They trusted in their own efforts. And Habakkuk, because that's the natural place, when I seek to justify Jesus Christ, I go to Habakkuk all the time, right? That's funny. It's a joke. Falling flat, sorry. But that's where he goes. He goes to Habakkuk. And Luther says on Habakkuk, this is what he says, Before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with him. But by the Spirit of God, I understood those words. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open door into the very paradise of God. For Luther was no longer about his own efforts, efforts and merits. <clears throat> it was about the efforts and merits of Jesus Christ. It was about the just living by faith. He began to operate by a completely different principle. And to follow this up, Paul goes to the next most natural place, Leviticus, because we all study Leviticus all the time, right? It's our favorite book of the Bible. My wife reads it to me while we're going to bed at night. Let's read from the book of Leviticus, right? You have probably passages from Leviticus memorized, right? No? Okay. Leviticus 18, 4 through 5. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. This is what Paul says in verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. If you are going to try to do the law in order to earn salvation, then you must live by them. And this is a living that is a 100% perfect living according to the law. <clears throat> the only blessing of the law comes to those who keep it. You can only be blessed through the law if you keep the law. The law, in essence, is not for believers. It's for doers. The law is based upon works. 
But, but again, we come back to the problem. The problem is this. No one can keep the law. No one can live by the whole of the law. We simply can't do it. Therefore, there is only one option. If you cannot live by the law, then you must live by faith. It is the only way we can be made right with God. God, uh, Luther, I should say, uh, speaking on behalf of God in a summary sort of way says, it's as if God is saying this, if you wish to placate me, do not offer me your works and merits, but believe in Jesus Christ, my only son who was born, who suffered, who was crucified and who died for your sins. Then I will accept you and pronounce you righteous. God comes and says, you want to, you want to be accepted by me? Then have faith in my son and that I will pronounce you right. Because here's the problem. We can't live by the law. We can't do it. And if we're going to try to do it, then we must do all of it, every last bit of it. And all this does is put a great millstone around our neck. If you're going to try to earn your justification, if you're going to try to earn your faith by the law, (coughs) it's like this. Let me go to the, the gym. Let me get two great 50-pound weights. Let me get a, a 30 or 40-pound chain and make a necklace for you. And let me put that around your neck and let you walk through the day. Can you imagine? And that, that is just a pale example of what I'm trying to say the law becomes for us. It becomes this burden, this weight, and we begin to hunch over and, and just collapse under the burden of it. We can't do it. But thankfully, we don't have to live this way. We don't have to live according to the law. We get to live by faith. It's a wondrous thing. It becomes not about our own efforts in keeping the law. It becomes about Christ's efforts in keeping the law. It's not about what we do. It's about what he does. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what he has done for us. About his being born and suffering and being crucified and being raised from the dead. We become redeemed by Christ, as as Paul says here in chapter 13, excuse me, verse 13. (coughs) If we have, in essence, you can see Paul's train of thought. If the law comes in and brings a curse to us and we cannot live to the law, therefore we come under the curse of the law. And we must be justified by faith. This is kind of his therefore. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ has rescued us. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In essence, Christ took the penalty for disobedience to the law upon himself for us. Because the law, understand this, you have not perfectly lived according to the law. I can say this with confidence for everyone in this room. We have not lived 
with perfection and concerning the law. Therefore, we have a curse placed upon us. We have a curse about what will happen to us. We have a problem. We need this curse to be removed. And this is what Christ has done. Redeeming his people from the law's accursed penalty. In essence, and this is a pale, pale example of this, it's as if he comes and takes that chain from around our necks. And that's not even close to what he actually did. Understand that. But you understand all of a sudden we feel the relief of it. The word redemption comes from the marketplace language. It refers to a payment of a price to redeem a slave. It, today, it'd be like coming and redeeming a coupon. You redeem a coupon for maybe 50 cents off this or a quarter off that. I don't know. <coughs> but in Paul's day, a friend or relative could go to the marketplace and redeem a loved one from slavery from captivity and set them free. And this is the language that Paul uses for what Christ has done for us. He comes in, us who are slaves to sin, we are slaves to the law, and he pays the price. The ultimate price, the greatest price that could ever be paid. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 Knowing that you are ransomed from the your, from the futile ways inherited, <coughs> excuse me, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver as gold. In essence, you were not redeemed with money, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. You have been redeemed. You have been purchased out of slavery. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He has redeemed you if you are in him. And in order to pay this redeeming price. To ransom you for your sins. Guess what had to happen? Because the curse doesn't just go away. God doesn't just come and say okay you're no longer cursed now. There has to be a reckoning for our sins. So what did Christ do? Christ, who knew no sin, who was not under the curse of the law, because guess what? He was that one guy who did get everything right. He became a curse for you. Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hangman is cursed by God. (coughs) You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. And God's people took this very seriously. When Joshua hung five Canaanite kings up on a tree, before the sun went down, they were were buried in the ground. When Saul's seven sons were hung up on a tree in 2 Samuel. Before that day was over, they were in the ground. The same thing was true of the Jewish leaders in John 19. They wanted Jesus down from that tree because it was a cursed thing. And it would curse the land. 
put this in your mind, how offensive this was, and then go to a Jewish person in this day and say, your Savior has hung from a tree. Can you, you can imagine the struggle at this point. No, that is contrary to everything that I believe. That is a cursed thing. And my Savior would not be a cursed thing. And they, they struggled with this. And we can begin to understand the Jewish hostility uh, to this. In fact, it's well documented. Uh, Trypho, a second century Jew, said this. But whether Christ should be so shamefully crucified, this we are in doubt about. For whoever is crucified is said in the law to be accursed, so that I am exceedingly incredulous on this point. He couldn't reconcile it because it went against everything that he believed. <laughs> but this is the exact same thing that Paul proclaims. <coughs> that Christ comes as a substitute. He was crucified for our sins. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Christ on the cross became a curse, not for himself, but for us. And so this makes sense of the cry of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus at that moment had become a curse for you and for me. He was forsaken as he received our curse upon himself. This is what Christ has done for you and for me. The cross is a public demonstration for all time of the condemnation of Jesus. Having seen the God-man on the cursed tree, who can doubt the sinfulness of sin or the wrath of God? We are left with a wondrous promise, though. We just sung the song, What Wondrous Love Is This, that would cause the Lord of Bliss to, to bear this awful weight for our soul. This is what he has done for us. What wondrous Love is this. He was crucified to remove the curse from us so that we now can receive that blessing that was promised to Abraham that we talked about last week. And we receive it, the promise through the Spirit, through faith. So then Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit. He reminds us that God's blessings include receiving the spirit with all its with all his gifts and glory and graces, excuse me. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. When we come into Christ, then all his blessings come with him to us. And we receive them by faith alone. Through the cross, we are accepted by God's justifying grace. This is, Paul is presenting us here, the wonderful, beautiful truth of the gospel. You can't do it. And because you can't do it, you're under a curse. 
But Christ has come, the one who is not under that curse, and he has taken your curse from you. He has put it on himself on the cursed tree, and he bore the wrath of God. If we are to stand upon our own works, upon the works of the law, we will only incur, incur the curse of God. For we cannot live perfectly to the law. Therefore, we must live by faith, resting on something outside of us, resting on the completed work of Jesus Christ. We have redemption in him. He has made satisfaction for the debt we have owed. He has paid for it with his own blood. There is no greater truth than this. Let us then live by faith, not by works. Paul is continuing to, to remind us where our hope is. He says, brothers and sisters, your hope is in this, that you could not do it, but Christ has done it for you. Do not try to add your works back to what he has already finished perfectly. It's the wonderful, beautiful truth of the gospel. And here's the truth. If you don't know Christ this morning, then you are still under the curse of the law. You are still under its condemnation. You still bear the weight and the guilt that comes with disobedience. Come and know Jesus Christ, who has redeemed his people out of death into life. Come in faith and repentance to him. My prayer is for everyone here today that you would know with certainty the wondrous truth of this word and that you would respond then in faith living by faith let's pray heavenly father we do thank you for this word we thank you uh, for galatians and the message it gives to us we thank you for the cross of jesus christ and what it has done for us we pray all this in jesus holy name amen